know, one of the things we're really wanting to do is really develop a, a, a culture of honor where we honor one another, we honor the Lord, and uh, it's such a great joy to introduce a, a friend and, uh, and a guy that I really love, Chad Williams, to you, and uh, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and give him a warm applause. Um, it's so great to, uh, to see the whole family. Um, last time Chad was with us, which was in 2012, uh, which was just months after we started this church, but uh, they were uh, great with child, right? And uh, you are, lo- are so lovely. Thank you so much for your family being here and your little girl, and what a, what a wonderful thing. Could I just have you stand? Yeah, please stand up, and would you just welcome? Amen. You know, having come from a military family, um, you know, everybody in our family dates back to the Revolutionary War. I've got, I can trace Hotzenfeller's back. It's pretty easy to trace them. There's only like nine of us. But, um, but you know, growing up in a home where, where my dad was, uh, was a colonel and just uh, really sold out for, uh, you know, for the things that matter, things like character, integrity, things about patriotism and honor. Um, so for me, it's an easy call to pick up the phone and say, Chad, I want you to come and speak to us again, come and bless our people and challenge our people, tell your story. And so I want to just welcome right now, and I want you to stand and give him an applause as we welcome Chad Williams. Thank you. Please take a seat. Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many fathers do we have in here? Actually, could I, whoa, that's a lot. Can I get you guys to stand up just to uh, acknowledge you, all the fathers? Why don't you stand up and to show our appreciation, I'm just going to ask that you guys would just remain standing throughout the remainder of the service to show we care for you. Just kidding. Take your seats. Uh, If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up to 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 5 here, uh, verses 1 through 17. That's where we have the story of Naaman, a Syrian soldier, verses 1 through 14. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. I'll go ahead and kick it off here. It says, Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in, And told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel had read this letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, 
Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And Elijah sent a message to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And he went away, saying, Indeed, I say to myself, he said, You surely shall come to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his, his hand over the place and heal my leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and been clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And a servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman, when he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Lord, we're just so thankful uh, for your word. And we ask now that you would just wash us in a renewal of uh, understanding according to your knowledge, Lord. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for all the fathers that we have here today. I pray that you would have your hand of favor upon them, that they would love their wives according to the scriptures, that they would be leaders of their household, and that they would have their eyes fixed on you, that they would be true disciples and students of Jesus. We know that you love us, Lord. You've displayed the greatest act of love there at the cross. As your word says, greater love has no one than this and one that lays down his life for his friends. And surely you have done that for all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Laying down lives for others. That's something that I'm somewhat familiar with, being a, a former U.S. Navy SEAL. Been there in the heat of battle. Uh, to kind of give you guys an idea of what my team was doing on our last deployment, uh, we were out in Iraq, and we were tasked with working with the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And our whole duty and goal while we're overseas was to blend in with these guys and to train them how to fight their own fights. Particularly, we're showing them how to hunt down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And so the very best way to train these guys is actually go out and operate with them. Uh, so a whole deployment's gone by, everything's going great, and we're coming up on that last operation. We know that we're just about out of time, about time to go home, and so we figure, um, you know, maybe these guys aren't really ready for us to go. Let's set up a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things hit the fan. Uh, so they go out and they find a source of information that tells them about an Iraqi policeman. The guy's a policeman by day, but at night... He's making these suicide vests and these IEDs. And to kind of give you an idea of the type of person that makes one of these suicide vests, uh, oftentimes is not the one that wants to wear it himself. In fact, they have such a hard time finding somebody to put one of these vests on uh, that in one instance, they took two mentally handicapped women and strapped these vests onto them and shoved them off into a marketplace. When they got into a crowded area, they set it off with the remote and uh, blew up dozens of people, killed them. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of the type of scumbags, the cowards that we're going after. Uh, so we decide, let's just kind of double check this intel to make sure that, you know, these Iraqis, they've, they've got it right. And so we're looking and we see, yeah, sure enough, this guy is an Iraqi policeman. He's making these suicide vests, these IEDs. And wow, all right, they figured out where he lives. They've got the plan. We know that in a matter of just a couple weeks from then, we'll be home. I'll be back in Orange County, Southern California. I'll be body surfing over at the wedge and surfing again. Looking forward to it. 
And for this last operation, uh, these ISOF, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, they let us know that, hey, you know, we realize we get shot at a little bit more than you guys when we go out in these operations, and we think we know why. We're like, okay, why? They say it's the uniforms. It's the uniform. So we were wondering, would you guys be willing, they're asking us, to strip off our American colored uniforms and to put on their colored uniforms, to blend in with them on this last operation. So we're like, okay, you want us to get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah. We're like, fine. All right. So needless to say, my dark complexion, my facial hair, put on one of their uniforms, I blend in just fine. (laughs) In fact, my wife, when she tries to motivate me to shave, she'll let me know, hey, Chad, it's time to cut it down. You're looking like Benlon's cousin or something. So... (laughs) It works, kind of. So we're going out with these guys, and, and man, I'm, I'm really looking forward to coming home. I'm behind the 50 caliber machine gun. I've got my green little world, my night vision goggles looking around, and we just know so much. We know this is it. We know we're going to be home real soon. What we didn't know about that night was that we were actually being set up the whole time for a real nasty ambush. Uh, more on that in a little bit. I want to share with you guys a little bit of my road to becoming a SEAL. You know, fresh out of high school, going into junior college, I had tasted some success in skateboarding and sponsored by a popular shoe company, Van Shoes, but I kind of got burned out on the whole skating thing, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. I was really blowing this first year in college, failing all of my classes, going out with friends, partying, and now I'm pulling into the, the parking lot at Golden West College, uh, realizing I haven't studied for these finals. I'm going to fail. I'm turning out to be one pathetic loser. So I'm sitting there in my truck thinking, man, I am just turning out to be the kind of guy that no young man ever wants to be, and I need to turn this thing around quick, otherwise I'm going to get stuck in this. And so I start to kind of daydream and think, what could I do with my life? I want to do something big. I want to do something great, something that, you know, once I achieve it, no matter what happens in my life from that point forward, I could always look back and say, hey, at least I did that thing. And so the idea pops into my head. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to become an Alaskan crab fisherman. Yeah. (laughs) Deadliest catch. One of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And surely there are some bragging rights in that job. It truly is one of the most dangerous. I almost went with that. When this other idea pops into my head, I go, wait a minute. Why can't I go join the military, be a part of the most elite, go through the most difficult military training there is in the world? I want to be a U.S. Navy SEAL. And so right there in the parking lot, I decide that's what I'm going to be, so I don't need to go to school anymore because I'm going to be a Navy SEAL driving out. Except one thing, got to let my old man know, my dad. So I put it to him like this. Look, Dad, I got some bad news, some good news. He goes, what's going on, Chad? Bad news is this. You know that time you thought I was going to class and everything? You know, I'm, I'm failing all my classes. All right, what's the good news? I'm glad you asked, Dad. It's okay because your son has a plan. I am going to be a Navy SEAL. (laughs) My dad's looking at me. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a moment here. Here's your son. Didn't stick with playing ball. He didn't stick with skateboarding. Can't make it to local community college. Now he's informing you he's going to go join the military's most difficult. So he just tries to be the voice of reason. He says, Chad, if you join the military and for some reason you quit or you don't make it, You can't just get out of the military. You can't just stop like all these other things that you just stopped. So if you join the military and you don't make it, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to get stuck in the military. You're going to be chipping paint off some boat in Japan. (laughs) He had a point. But I knew, I knew I was going to do this. And so what do I do? Typical teenage fashion. I just, you know, go storming out of there in fury. Ah, you don't understand. 
you know, meanwhile, I'm going to, like, the local schoolyard. I'm doing, like, pull-ups on the jungle gym. Like, teachers are looking at me, like, who's this creep on the yard? And, you know, I'm doing the push-ups and running past the house like little Rocky. Just dun 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 My dad's peeking through the blinds watching me. He calls me back in one day. He goes, so you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a Navy SEAL? Yeah, I want to be a Navy SEAL. He goes, great. I set up a workout for you with a Navy SEAL. His name's Scott Helvenston. Check out my computer screen. And I look over at the computer screen, and there's the strangest little one-liner there. It says, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? <laughs> I'm looking at that, looking at my dad like, dad. Are you sure this guy's even a Navy SEAL? He's like, yeah, he's a Navy SEAL. And I'm like, you met him on the internet, yeah? He, Chad, he's a Navy SEAL. All right, fine, I'll go meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. Well, there was more to that conversation my dad had with Scott that I didn't know about at the time. I'll fill you guys in on it now. See, my dad talked to Scott on the phone prior to that email. And he says, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, and he has no idea what he's getting himself into. So... If I pay you some money, would you be willing to meet up with my son, and I'm paying you to bury him, <laughs> crush him, beat the desire of becoming a seal out of him? And so Scott, thinking about it, replies in the email, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? Well, I go meet up with this Navy SEAL, Oceanside, California, beach parking lot. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. Scott and I, we wind up going for a run. He lets me take off about 15 minutes ahead of him, says he's going to catch up. I've got this other guy that was with me for a little bit. He was an ex-Marine going into the Navy. He wanted to become a SEAL. I'm burning this guy, leaving him behind, thinking that Navy SEAL's never even going to catch me. I'm looking back, thinking about the names of my friends. I'm going to let them know, like, I burned this Navy SEAL on a run. And as I look over my shoulder, just like the movie Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the bad guy, the T-1000, it morphs. It has, like, these knife hands and chases down a vehicle. That's Scott. He's coming up on me quick with these knife hands. I can't do anything to keep him back. I'm going as fast as I can. He closes the distance, passes me on this trail, and then he stops. And just, I remember the moment so clearly, I think that was dumb of you because I'm going to take every opportunity, every step I could get to try and get ahead of him. So as he stopped and I'm going by and all this is just happening so slow in my mind, I see his hand turn to a fist. And he just impales my stomach, and I go for a ride, clothesline, feet in the air, wind knocked out of me before my back even goes into the ground. Poof of dirt, woof, up all around me. And then just put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. All I know at the time is this. Some guy my dad met off the internet, child predator, he's got me. He jumps on top of me. And he's just ragdolling me in the ground. You can hear the threads of my shirt ripping, a spit flying out of his mouth, landing on my face. And he's screaming, you want to be a Navy SEAL? You better stay three paces behind me. And then it dawns on me that this is it. This is for real. That if I quit right now, I will forever be a quitter. The way I respond now is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. So I make it up in my mind. I'm going to die before I quit. He gets up off me, turns around, begins to run. I'm going after him. He continues to turn around, just pummel me into the ground. I keep getting up, going after him. This goes on for a couple miles. And I'll tell you what, after having gone through SEAL training, the most difficult military training there is in the world, looking back in hindsight, I never went through a more difficult singular beatdown session than this time with Scott. At 19 years old, I heard noises coming out of my esophagus as I was breathing that have never been repeated. 
but I stay with him. We finally get to this point where we circle up and he's looking at me and he's walking back and forth like one of these UFC fighters. Like he wants to get into a cage fight with me. And I don't even want to project to him that I'm willing to fight at all. So I'm like using my peripherals. I'm like, I don't want none. I don't want to fight. And he breaks this awkward tension asking me, if we would have gone another mile, would you have stayed with me? And that's when I told him, Scott, I'll die before I quit. He goes, great. You want to meet up again for another workout tomorrow? I'm like, what are we going to talk about what you did back there? I mean, you kind of had a flashback or something, man. Like, you really flipped out on me, and he wasn't going to discuss it. So I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll meet up again for another workout. I'm going back, dragging my feet to my truck, thinking, man, I just got beat up by this Navy SEAL. What am I, I can't tell my dad. And so as I'm driving back, I begin to realize, though, I made it through a Navy SEAL workout. I could do this again. I could do it again tomorrow. So I go from dragging my feet to clicking my heels. I'm getting to the house. I'm reaching for that door to go through. My dad's already there. He's pulling that door open as I'm stepping through. How did it go? Dad, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> He's like, what? He gets on the phone with Scott. We all had lunch one day. They, they broke all this to me, the little backstory. He's like, what's going on? Scott says, I know that you wanted me to beat the desire of becoming a seal out of him, but I actually think your son might have what it takes. I'd like to start working with him from this day forward. And so from that day forward, I met up with Scott virtually every single day. And it was no longer a beat down, it was a building up. And I went from just being like Bubba, it was Bubba before, our Bubba, come on over here. Now I'm junior. He's like a second father to me. And uh, he's preparing me. Like I said, not a beat down. It's a building up as we're going running, swimming, kayaking, mountain climbing, you name it. And Scott, he was no ordinary Navy SEAL if there ever were such a thing. I'll just kind of give you an idea just how tough of a guy he was. Youngest man to have ever made it through SEAL training. What age is that? Let me first say this, that he grew up in over 27 different foster homes from 9 to 15 years old. Military took him early. He was a Navy SEAL by the time he was 17 years old. That's the record to this day, and I'm confident nobody will ever beat that. They'll never have the circumstances that lead up to it. Uh, not only is he the youngest man to have ever made it through SEAL training, but he's also a world champion penathlete. So you've heard of the triathlons before, three events. Just imagine a penathlon, five events, world champion status. He's also the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. So to kind of put that into perspective, there's an obstacle course that every Navy SEAL has to go through, and we're timed, and we do this all a lot. There's not a single Navy SEAL on the face of this planet that could beat this Navy SEAL that we're talking about, Scott, going through an obstacle course. And then finally, one more is kind of funny. I remember one day Scott's like, all right, Junior, you want to go mountain climbing? Yeah, never been mountain climbing before. And so he's loading up the truck. He's the ropes, the carabiners, the harnesses. And I'm sitting passenger seat. So he's getting into the driver's seat. And I'm thinking to myself, this is special. Not everybody gets to do this all the time with a Navy SEAL like this. I should really capture the moment, try and take it in. So you ever done this before? You kind of look around. You want to really remember things? Well, I was doing that. I'm like, all right. I've got the sun cascading in through the windshield, and look at that. There's Scott's arm up there on the wheel, and I want my arms to be just like Scott's one day. I'm taking weird mental pictures. You know, Scott's looking over at me. It's like, all right, Junior, he's telling me about this story. Oh, cool Scott story. He tells us about this program he was on one time called Man vs. Beast, and the whole premise of the program is this. These Hollywood producers would take a human being, put him up against a wild animal, a beast, on this show, cameras rolling, and it'd be a competition of strength or speed. And on this program, every time, hands down, the human loses. The beast makes a fool out of the hum human being. 
So they get this chimpanzee, and they build an obstacle course for it, and they train it to go through the obstacle course, superhuman speed. They've heard about Scott. They get him on the phone. Hey, we hear you're something special. We want to know, do you want to go against our chimpanzee through an obstacle course? Scott, not being the kind of guy to ever back down, says, yeah, I'll race the monkey. And so he shows up. <laughs> They've got these cameras rolling from all the different angles. They're on the starting line. Boom, they're off, head to head, you know, going over a high wall, the rope, the cargo nets. The irony of it all is that by the time they got to those monkey bars, Scott's pulling ahead of this monkey. He beats the beast on man versus beast. He's the only human being to have ever done it. And so, uh, yeah, I remember Scott just telling me, he goes, you know, Junior, all those other programs on man versus beast where the human loses, the beast wins, they would re-air those programs all the time on TV. This is my show where I beat the beast. They only played it on television one time. <laughs> So, youngest man I've ever made through SEAL training, world champion panathlete, fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course, only man to have ever beaten the beast on man versus beast, and I get to spend every day with this guy. But my time was approaching uh, to go in. I had a date. It was set. And so one of the ways that Scott and I, we'd wrap up a workout together was we'd go down to his local community pool, and he'd teach us some underwater breath holding and knot tying I was going to need to know how to do to go through SEAL training. And then we'd just kind of philosophize, you know, talk about what we got going on in life. He'd be, you know, ribbing me, asking me about girls, and, you know, just kind of talking about personal things. And he says, you know, I've got this opportunity uh, to go overseas. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, make a difference. It's only going to be a couple months long. I'm thinking about doing it. And he's, he, so he decides he's going to do it. And he's reasoning with me, letting me know that by the time he gets done over in Iraq, uh, that I'll be done with boot camp and I'll start SEAL training. He'll be back in Southern California to see me go through. Uh, so we get on the phone with each other as he's on his way out. He says, all right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing, referring to Iraq. He says, I want you to know something. I've never told anybody that I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And to hear that from Scott, that meant the world to me. That was like making it almost right there. It gave me a lot of confidence, too. And so I was like, wow, thanks, Scott. You know, I can't wait to see you when you get back. We say our goodbyes, and now I'm about to go to boot camp. I just got a handful of days, and I figure if I can't work out with Scott in person for these last few days, I can work out with him on video. He's got some video workouts recorded, so that's what I'll do. So I get a video workout. I turn on the television. I'm about to throw this workout into the player. Before it even goes into the player, boom, Scott's face is already on TV. I'm like, what is going on here? Scott didn't let me know he's going to be on TV again. As I'm watching, it's a picture of Scott smiling. Typical profile shot they would use of him. I'm trying to figure this out. And as my eyes go to the bottom of the screen, I see the lower third, and it says Scott's birth date followed by a dash, and it says March 31st, 2004. This picture of Scott smiling, it changes then. I'm no longer looking at a snapshot. Now I'm looking at video footage. And those same arms that I have a mental picture of, as funny as it is, to this day in my head, I remember the moment, passenger seat, I'm looking at those same arms now through a television screen on video, and they're lifeless. He's laying in the streets of Fallujah in Iraq. His clothing is smoldering on fire. He's got this angry Iraqi mob. They've surrounded his body, and they went and they found some sticks and rods, and they began to beat and wail away on him, mutilating him. Then they go off and find some rope, and they wrap it around Scott's legs, and they hook him up to a vehicle, and they drag his body through the streets of Fallujah, and then they hang him upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge, set his body on fire, and repeatedly just say over and over in Arabic, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. They'd ambushed the vehicle that Scott was in. It was a premeditated attack, so they had video cameras rolling. 
and they documented all of it step by step, and they gave it to the media here in the States, and so I'm watching as they play step by step uh, what they had done to Scott. I don't even have the words to explain the emotions, the feelings that I went through as I watched these things. This was not supposed to happen. In my eyes, Scott was invincible. I even went through denial. I thought maybe he had to fake a death or something like that for a super secret operation. But I knew what I saw. I knew those arms. And so needless to say, it just it changed me as a human being. And it really changed a huge part of the motivation to become a Navy SEAL. In one sense, I wanted a lot of revenge now. Before, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL just because I thought it was cool, the rock star element to it. But now, I want to be a Navy SEAL for a whole lot more. I want revenge. I don't even want the training. I want to go right now and try and rip out the hearts of these men that did this to Scott. But I also want to become a SEAL to walk in Scott's footsteps. It's almost like I need to know. I need to become like he was to fill his shoes. And so... I go through boot camp and I enter into SEAL training. It's called BUDS, stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And I had Scott's name written on the bill of my hat as a reminder and a motivation to get through. And SEAL training is by far the most difficult military training there is in the world, hands down. Uh, to kind of give you an idea of just how tough it is, I'll share a couple things with you guys. Uh, this one thing I don't think I shared with you uh, last time I was here. It really is one of the most difficult parts of SEAL training, and you don't hear about it too often. In fact, I didn't even write about it in my book, but I'll share it with you. It comes just the day before graduation. You see, the very first day of SEAL training, when you show up, these instructors will give you a little animal, a little dog, puppy, to take care of. And you ladies might think, oh, how sweet. Well, don't get ahead of yourselves here. The last thing you ever want to deal with at the end of a very long day of training is some whiny, poopy, peeing dog keeping you up all night. He's like a little torture device, and the instructors know it. <laughs> but, you know, as training progresses, that saying, man's best friend, it is true. This dog really does begin to grow on you as you're looking out for him, taking care of him. He's your little ally, your little swim buddy. And now that day before graduation... In order to show that as a Navy SEAL, you are prepared, if this is required of you, to take life. You have to take that dog that you've loved and nurtured and cared for, and with your own bare hands, you have to take his life. I'm just pulling your chain. No, you don't do that. <laughs> you don't do that at all. In fact, they don't give you a dog at all. <laughs> That's just a crazy rumor out there. <laughs> I think I kind of got you guys on it. <laughs> That's why I don't mention it in the book. I'm just shifting gears there a little bit. Six cents of humor, I know. Let me be real, though. Genuine, most difficult part of SEAL training, it's called Hell Week. What is Hell Week? It's five and a half days. You get four hours of sleep. That's not four hours of sleep per night. That's a grand total. Four hours of sleep for the full five and a half days. From the moment Hell Week begins, you are going into the, the water without a wetsuit on. Two, three o'clock in the morning, you're shivering cold. The shivering gets so bad, they call it jackhammering. You look like you're hanging onto a jackhammer. You link arms with your buddies. It's called surf torture as the instructors will leave you in the water until three guys quit. We're not taking you guys out till we get three of you to quit. And so just every nerve is exposed in your body as you're going through stages of hypothermia, looking left and right, like who's going to quit? If you're not in the water, you're on your feet. And you're covering over 200 miles during Hell Week. And that's not just with your own body weight. That's with a boat on top of your head. And the pressure of this boat is so great that it rubs through the hair in the top of your head, through your skin. It's broken guys' necks before. My class is a guy that broke his leg. 
And if you don't have this boat on top of your head, you're carrying around a telephone pole wherever you go. And just imagine, you're wet the entire time. You've been in a pool before and your fingers get a little soggy and a little delicate. Imagine five and a half days of salt water and sand rubbing and grinding in every little unfriendly place of your body. You feel every square inch of yourself as you go. And then there's the hallucinations. You see things that frankly are not there. I remember the last night of Hell Week, we do this paddle called Around the World. You paddle around Coronado Island. I'm paddling, I'm looking in the water, and I mean, I grew up watching Ninja Turtles, and I see Donatello. <laughs> there's Raphael, bobbing their heads up, and they're winking at me. You know, other guys are experiencing their own hallucinations. You know, meanwhile, one guy jumps up on the boat. He's throwing this stiff hand salute, and we're pounding along. We're like, what's going on, man? And he points it out. He goes, the Statue of Liberty! <laughs> and we're in Coronado, wrong coast. It's funny to look back on it, but it is frightening when you're going through these things, right? Like, Ninja Turtles are not real. I'm seeing them. Uh, but, you know... How weak, it's, this is just a portion of SEAL training. There's so much more to it, but it is by far the most difficult. I'd say the numbers speak for themselves. Out of 173 guys that started in my class, all valuing the same thing, will die before we quit. And they have to ring a brass bell three times in front of everyone to quit. Out of 173 guys, by graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing there. And it was by far one of the happiest days of my life. Remember, I have Scott's name written on the bill of my hat. I remember the moment as I'm walking up and thinking, I have this sort of sensation like, Scott, we did it, brother. We made it. I got my family. My friends are there. As I'm getting the trident, the insignia that says I've become a seal, pinned into my chest, one of the happiest moments of my life. But what I wasn't prepared for was in that day, not only was it one of the happiest days of my life, but it was truly one of the lowest days of my life. And I wasn't ready for that. It was like the roller coaster began to go down and down quick, and I didn't understand it at the time. I heard these words two years later, though, and it hit the nail on the head. It's Ravi Zacharias. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he has achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. For me, deliver, like the ultimate was to become a Navy SEAL. I had such high expectations that, you know what, my life is unsettled, it's a mess right now, but when I become a Navy SEAL, that's when everything's going to come together. That's when everything's going to make sense. And I think that every one of you could relate with this, at least to some degree, it's known as a human condition. And it works something like this. Where are you at in your life? Well, a lot of people say they're not really happy where they're at, but they've got plans. They've got some goal, some achievement that they're aiming towards. The grass is greener on the other side, and they're working their way over there. And so they've got the drive. They've got the hunger for it and the discipline, and they begin to work their way towards it. And what happens? That day finally comes when they get there, they eat it up, and they are satisfied. But what happens? You get hungry all over again. So what do you do? Well, you kind of reason with yourself because that wasn't the ultimate. That was just kind of a high goal that you're going for. You go, it makes sense. I'm not totally satisfied at this level. I need to go for more. I need to trek up the mountain a little bit higher. And so you set up a new goal and you thirst for it. You go after it. You get there. You drink it up. You're satisfied. But then you're thirsty all over again. It's this vicious cycle. In fact, a billionaire that was interviewed in Forbes magazine was asked if you could go back in time and give yourself a word of advice, what would it be? And his response was, well, I'd go back to my old self and say, hey, just so you know, when you get to the top of the mountain up there, there's nothing up there. 
It's when you finally got into the top of the mountain, when you got to the top of the totem pole, and there you're still left hungry and thirsty for more, but now you don't even have a little higher to go. That state is worse to be in, I think, than being a little lower on the mountain. Because at least when I wasn't a SEAL, I had becoming a Navy SEAL to look forward to. But now that I'm there and I realize I'm still just a man, I'm still just a human, and that satisfaction only lasted for a very temporary amount of time, I was in a really bad spot. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate in the end, it lets him down. So what do I do? Well, I don't want to let my family know. I don't want to let my friends know. So I just put on a front, sort of a facade. Chad, you got to be on top of the world, man. You're living a dream, man. You made it. You're a Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah, rock star. I get put on SEAL Team 1. They just got back from Iraq. And so there's 30 days that we have off. So I go back to my hometown, hanging out with old friends, and what do we do? Well, I'm not following the Lord at this time in my life, so I'm just going to go out and do whatever feels fun, whatever feels good for the moment. And so it's drinking. Let's go drink. Let's go party. And it got really out of hand. It would get to the point where I find myself stealing two kegs of beer with some friends. We drink one up that night, totally black out, get into fights, and I wake up needing 26 stitches on my knuckles, not even remembering. I'm, I'm in the back seat of my parents' car. They're driving me to San Diego, and they're just like, you're out of your mind. You've lost your mind. You came home last night. You had blood all over. You're spreading blood all over the walls in our home. You went in your sister's room, challenged your dad to a fight. I don't remember any of this. And at the time, I didn't have any remorse either. That's just how depraved I was. I kind of looked at it like a funny story, like, all oh, right. You know, what? I'll tell the guys back at the team, crazy night. I didn't have any remorse. And so I remember this much. There's one more keg of beer, and I know where I hid it. It's in my dad's garage. And so I go back the next day. I have plans of drinking up again that night. And my dad confronts me at the door. He says, you're not welcome in our home anymore. Not if this is what you're going to go do. He says, we love you. You're our son. We want to welcome you here. Why don't you just come here, have some dinner with us. Don't go out and drink. But if you're going to drink, we're not a crash pad. We're not just a place where you could sleep it off. And so I decide I'm going to play my cards here a little bit. I could tell he's pretty upset. I just want to get to that keg of beer. And so they'd been inviting me to go to church for a very long time, and I never wanted to go. I don't want to go. But I realized this is a good opportunity to punch my card in at church and make him happy. And so I say, you guys, you guys are going to go to church tonight, right? Yeah. All right, I'll go with you. You will? Yeah, I'll go. My whole thing was this thing will be over by 9.30 at night. I'm not even going to start my night till 10 or 11. We'll get home, get to that keg of beer. When they're happy, I'll fall right off their radar, slip on out. Everyone wins. So we go. And there's this man that's speaking there that night by the name of Greg Laurie. And he opens up to this story in 2 Kings chapter 5 that we read. He begins to talk about a soldier, Naaman. And as he describes Naaman from the scriptures, I'm kind of excited. I'm thinking of all the knights to come to church. Here I am. He's talking about a soldier. This guy sounds like he would have been a Navy SEAL of his own time had there been such a thing. I'm on SEAL Team 1. Cool. Get a good story. He describes the story of Naaman, how Naaman's this commander. He's got all of this respect. He's highly regarded and revered by his men. Even the king enjoys Naaman's company. Naaman's this man of valor. But, but what? You remember, Naaman has leprosy. And leprosy, for those of you that maybe don't know, during Naaman's time was a skin disease that had never been fixed. Naaman was a dead man walking. So, so much for all of this success, 
this outward persona, when underneath it all, underneath that armor that he would wear as a commander, he is deteriorating, he is dying. It's been said that not even the worst criminal of all Syria would ever want to trade skin with Naaman. And no doubt about it, Naaman, being the man that he was, liking to take matters into his own hands, probably did everything. He exhausted every avenue in his own power, and his own strength, his own might, to deal with this leprosy. He had money. He paid doctors. No one could fix him. And so he hears about this prophet, this Elisha, who can maybe do something. And so he decides to go. The king sends him off. He brings with him the equivalent, not sure if you caught it, translation here, the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, and he brought some apparel. He's prepared to pay this prophet off, do whatever it takes. So they get to the door, and what happens? Elisha won't even come to the door. Naaman's totally disrespected. Remember who he is. And he's got this entourage of men. They're there with him. This prophet won't even come to the door to give him a face-to-face. It's his servant that tells him, if you go out in the river over there and dip yourself seven times and you come up, you'll have brand new skin. Naaman's response, remember, He's furious. He could probably just about have Elisha's head in this moment right now. So what's he do? He turns. He's just like, I'm going to go. I've got cleaner rivers where I'm from, and it's true. Why would I go dip myself in that dirty, muddy Jordan River over there? And what's the problem here? He's got his mind wrapped all around the physical, and he's not thinking about the spiritual thing that might take place as he's going. And then what happens? One of his men comes running up to him. Hey, Naaman, tries to reason with him. Look, you know, if the prophet would have told you to do some great thing, some mighty thing, you would have done it. I mean, we could imagine if the prophet said, this is what you need to do to get healed. Kick off your shoes. We've got some broken glass spanning over 200 miles. And I want you to run barefoot over it. Naaman would be like, show me where to start. Or why don't you go charge it out there into the water? I want you to hold your breath to the point of unconsciousness seven times. Naaman would have been running for that water. But because it was such a simple thing to him, it seemed like a very foolish thing. And really the obstacle that's getting in the way here, I think you all could see it, is Naaman's pride. He had way too much pride. And that's kind of the thing that most of us men especially have, is a whole lot of pride, ego. He was going to be required to show a little humility here. And just imagine how difficult this would have been for Naaman, this commander, the, all these men that respect him. He wears armor as a commander, a soldier. Maybe his men had never really seen just how bad his leprosy really was underneath it all. And so he's really going to expose himself here. He's going to be very transparent, which is not an easy thing to do. As he peels away that armor, it's like peeling away his pride. He decides to do it. He's showing humility. He's showing faith and trust. He believes He wouldn't be doing this if he didn't trust. He believes that God's going to come through if I do this thing. And he dips himself five, six times, nothing but on that seventh time, just like this man of God, the prophet had said, he had brand new skin like that of a baby. The leprosy was wiped away, blotted out. I'm on the edge of my seat listening to this thinking, whoa, (laughs) well, what a cool story. What an inspiring story. It's about time to get going though, huh? No. It gets personal. I want it to hit home for all of you. It gets pointed out that, look, just as Naaman had his leprosy underneath it all, what do you got going on underneath it all? What kind of a front do you put on with people 
at work, your friends, your family, when underneath it all, just as Naaman had his leprosy, we've got something deteriorating and destroying us. In the biblical language, it's known as sin. Who are you when you're all by yourself, you're in your room, the lights are off, and all you're left with is your own thoughts? You know who you are. We put on a big front sometimes. We have that ego and that pride. If we want to come after God, if we want to be fixed of that, it's going to require some humility. So what could you do? Well, just as Naaman had a way out, there is a way out. Naaman, he had that humility as he went walking out into that water, and he put his faith and trust that God would come through. Well, you don't put your faith and trust in some water. It's described that this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, came into this world. He lived a holy, perfect, sinless life. And he went to the cross. Why? Not to be some example. Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to pay the debt that you and I owe, the eternal consequences of our mistakes, of our sins. And he suffered and he died for our sins, but he conquered the power of that sin by rising again from the dead. And so it's described that just as Naaman could turn from his prideful self into this water, we're to turn from our sin, from our pride. And you don't turn to some water, you turn to this Jesus of Nazareth. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, starts with that, deny himself, take up his own cross daily and follow after me. It's turning from sin, which is repentance, and you're putting your faith, your trust in Jesus to save you. To save you from what? To save you from your sin. March 14, 2007, that's precisely what I did. And I experienced what the scriptures say. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Not only am I forgiven of my sin, liberated of it. Jesus did it all at the cross but now I'm a student of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. It's a way of life while you're here on earth to follow after him. And needless to say, I never went back to that keg of beer. Changed man. In fact, a couple years later, I'm cleaning out the garage with my dad. I forgot about this thing. And we're doing a little spring cleaning and you know, he reveals it from a blanket. I'm like, oh no. Like, he's like, what is this? I'm like, remember that night we went to church together? I got, I got a funny story to share with you. And got to kind of fill them in on these things. But here I am now. I'm an active duty Navy SEAL. Biggest part of me wanted so much revenge. I wanted to kill these guys. Let God sort them out when we get over there. But I'm not full of this anger anymore. There is a professional side to being a SEAL though. You know, it's been said that all that's required for evil to triumph is for what? Good men to stand back and do nothing. There are still very evil men out there that have intentions of taking suicide vests and strapping them on to mentally handicapped people. We got to do something about that. And so that night, uh, you know, we're going out, and we get into this big ambush, you know, big gunfight and everything. We're in the fight for our lives. You know, you got rounds snapping over our heads, impacting our vehicles. We're returning fire. I don't have time to share with you all the details of what happened that night, but I can tell you this. A lot of guys died that night. Thankfully, nobody on our side. We won. The worst we had was a guy got shot in the butt, and he was laughing about it. I got shot in the butt. <laughs> He's like, it went in and out. I'm fine. Just give me some morphine. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? It doesn't always work out where all of our guys come back safe and alive. And so just in closing here, I want to remember some of those that have laid down their lives for the sake of freedom. Freedom isn't free. 
It's paid for with the blood of men on the battlefield. I'd start with Mike Mansour, who is a U.S. Navy SEAL. And while he's overseas in a place called Ramadi in Iraq, he's up on top of a roof. And if you can imagine, he's providing cover for some other SEALs that were down on the road. When from an unknown location, a hand grenade gets thrown up on the roof, and it hits Mikey right in the chest, and it falls into the dark. And he had an exit just a step away. That grenade, not his problem. But here's the rub. There's other SEALs that were on the roof with Mikey, and they didn't stand a chance of making it past this grenade and to the exit. And so Mikey, in a split-second, selfless act, last word, grenade, lunges down onto the grenade, smothering it. Just as he gets to it, it goes off. And he absorbs the shock of this grenade all on himself, takes all the shrapnel, the metal, his body like a sponge, suffers for 30 minutes before he dies. But because of what he did, all of the other guys on the roof, each and every one of them, they all lived. Mark these words down in history. Greater love has no one than this, than one that lays down his life for his friends. My friend Scott, for the longest time, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to discuss what happened to Scott. It was just, it was tough. It was a bad memory. I thought, you know, that's just, you know, it just, it stinks. But I've realized that Scott, when he was over there, it wasn't without purpose. One of the last things he ever said is, Junior, when I go over there, perhaps I can make a difference. So although he was killed and hung from the Euphrates River Bridge, set on fire, it wasn't in vain. It was for the sake of freedom. And he would have died for anyone here in this room, it's just the kind of guy he was. So again, those words, greater love has no one than this and one that lays down his life for his friends. Scott did that for his country. He even did it for the Iraqi people as well, to liberate them. And finally, if I could just get you to consider the man who spoke those words of greater love that I'm quoting, it's none other than Jesus. And he said it at a very unique time. It's prior to the cross. So I know everyone here has heard about Jesus, of course. Everyone here has in America, the United States. Sometimes, though, we could talk about what happened at the cross, and maybe it's just because we talk about it so much that we could get a little inoculated. Why is it that when I talk about soldiers that lay down their lives for the sake of freedom, you could about hear a pin drop in this room? But Jesus doesn't always get that same kind of unwavering attention. And so if we could just use these soldiers right now as a sort of a lens, a perspective to look through to get the proper perspective of the cross, this is how it works. That just as Mike Monsieur jumped on that hand grenade, absorbing the blast of that grenade all on himself, why? So that others could live. Never forget that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took the blast, not of some hand grenade, the blast of our sin, our mistakes upon himself. Remember, that grenade was not even Mikey's problem. He had an exit just a step away. Sin was never Jesus' problem. Not for one split second did he ever sin. He took our leprosy, as it were, upon himself. He traded skin with you and I, absorbing the blast of that sin, the consequences of it. And just as my friend Scott was killed and hung from that Euphrates River Bridge for the sake of freedom, never forget that Jesus of Nazareth, he was killed and he was hung from the cross of Calvary so that we could have freedom from the eternal consequences of sin. Greater love has no one than this and one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in soldiers like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvenston and even greater, look to the cross. 
That's the proper perspective of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says, for He, speaking of the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And I really appreciate that that word might is there because the truth is, is that not everybody will. Jesus says it himself. He says the majority. He says wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many that go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I think one of the most difficult things about going through that gate I think one of the biggest issues with that wide gate that everybody's going on is they, don't, they want to go down their own road. They don't want to turn to God. They don't want to humble themselves before God. They want to do it their way. They forget that they're created, that God owns them, and he's not going to sweep sin under the rug. It was us that got ourselves into this mess, sinning. It's incredible that God even extends the hand. He makes the first move. It says what? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because he first loved us. He demonstrates that love there at the cross. He says, I could forgive you. I could forgive you of all of your mistakes, all of your sin. And don't forget, it's not like he just sweeps it away, wipes it away. Christ paid for it in blood at the cross. This is reality. And no one else could ever do that for you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We will all stand before God one day. There's two different types of men, or you could say women as well, in this world, C.S. Lewis says. There's that man that will bow his knee before God and say, God, thy will be done. Then there's the other that refuses to bow his knee before God, and God says to him, your will be done. If you don't want anything to do with God, and you want to live your very narrow window, opportunity of life here on earth in your own customized way. You know, sin's enjoyable for a season. It's fun for a little bit, but it has its eternal sting. God will grant you your wish. If you don't want anything to do with him, you could have it that way. But if you do want to turn from your sin, you find yourself like Naaman, living a life that is one way on the outside, underneath it all, you know your own conscience. There are some things that need to be dealt with, and you're done with them. There's nothing you could do on your own. Christ already did it. If you would humble yourself and say, I'm going to turn from these things. I'm going to turn from sin. I don't want to look at these things at the computer anymore. I don't want to treat people this way. I don't want want my hands to be touching these things that aren't mine. My feet going places they ought not to go. Done with them. That's what it is to repent. And you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, and you don't have my word on it. You have God's word on it. He will remember your sin no more. That's a figure of speech to say... He removes it as far away as the east is from the west. Done. Christ pays for it all. If you guys want to do that, you have an opportunity to do that. Jesus himself, I quote him, he says, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Do you have it within you? The flip side of that is true as well. He says, If you deny me before men, and to say nothing is to say no, he says, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. We're all going to stand before him one day. If you guys want to take that opportunity now, though, to deal with this, to turn from sin, put your faith and trust in him, know that when you die, you will live forever in eternity and live a life here on earth that is conquering over sin as you become a student of Jesus Christ. Here's an opportunity to do that as we pray together right now. 
Father, we just come before you so thankful, Lord, for soldiers that are overseas right now being a living sacrifice and those, Lord, that have poured out their blood on the battlefield so that we could enjoy the freedoms we have here in the U.S. And Lord, most of all, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus, who went to the cross and he paid for it all with his blood at the cross, absorbing our sin, trading skin with us so that we would have the opportunity to be set free from it, the bondage of it, and so that we could live a life that is conquering and dominating over the power of sin, that our citizenship would change and be in heaven as sons and daughters of God. While everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to ask in these final moments here, if you find yourself to be the man like Naaman, if you find yourself to be that person that realizes that, yeah, I'm living one way on the outside when underneath it all, I am struck through with sin. We're going to have to stand before God. You don't want to be that person that stands before God and he says something to you like, I sent my son into the world to die for you and you just let it go by the wayside. Here's a golden opportunity here. God is your witness. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions right now. If you want to be done with this sin and turn from it and begin to follow God, follow Jesus, you have an opportunity to do that. Would you raise your hand if you want to do that right now and I want to pray with you? Yes, lift up your hands. If you, keep your hands up. If you want to turn from sin, hold them up all the way and put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Is there anyone else here? There's many hands going up. Keep those hands up. Is there anyone here maybe has had a relationship with the Lord, played the part of a prodigal son, prodigal daughter, fallen away, you need to get back on track? Today's the day you could do that. Would you lift up your hand as you have the opportunity to repent? Put your faith and trust in him. Hold those hands up all the way. Amen. Those of you that are holding your hands up right now, this is kind of a moment of truth. I'm going to ask that if you're serious about this, would you stand to your feet and come forward right now? I'm going to pray with you. Stand to your feet if you have your hand up and come on forward. And I got to say this, if you're not serious about it and you didn't realize it was going to be a full commitment, you can slip your hand right back down. You don't have to come up. No one will notice except God, right? This is a time to go all in. To show full allegiance, full loyalty to him. Jesus, he died for us. Is there anyone else here? You're holding back? I was that guy that held back. You know you should be up here right now. It's not too late but this moment will go. You have the opportunity to pop up out of your seat right now. We'll pray together. Are you holding on? What's getting in the way? It's pride, right? Pride is a tough thing to deal with. Crucify it. Crush it. Nail it to the cross right now. Show some humility. Be a God-fearing man. And come on forward right now. We're going to pray together. God is your witness. He knows your thoughts and intentions right now. If you need to be up here, get up here right now. Do this. He wants you up here. The enemy of your soul does not want you up here. Amen. Those of you that are up here right now, I just ask that you would look at me right now. I want to pray with you guys. This is a prayer, though, that it doesn't work if you just repeat it after me and are mentally checked out because it's not some incantation, right? Uh, this is a prayer that you have to take ownership of. So I just ask would you think about what you're saying before you say it, and it will be meaningful then. 
This is a prayer of repentance, turning from sin, and declaring your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And you have God's word on it, what comes next after that, if you mean it. Forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner, but you died on the cross for me. I turn from my sin now, and I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for loving me and dying for me and help me to follow you from this moment forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I'm so proud of you guys. There's so much more. You guys stay here. There's so much more I wish I could share with you. Because in a way, I got to let you know, I wish somebody told me this, that as a follower of Christ, you now have a target on your back, the enemy of your soul. He wants to try and take you down any way he can. He can't pull you into hell, but he can try and get you wrapped up in some sin. But be of good cheer. Jesus says, hey, in this life you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. And so we've just got some folks that are going to follow up with you guys. This is very important. All right, so if you would just go to my right, your left, over here, yep, we have one of the leaders of the church. Christy's going to uh, follow up with you guys, get some materials into your hands, pray with you guys, and just make sure that you have every opportunity to make good on this commitment that you've made to Jesus Christ. So if you would just follow her out, make your way right now. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Final words for me. For those of you that know God, they know God. For those of you that know God, what do you do with your life while you're here on earth? Will you make him known? So I'll close with these words. C.S. Lewis, he says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. But Christianity is the story of how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. I love that. What is that campaign of sabotage? Well, it's overturning the plans of the enemy of our soul. How? With the power of the gospel, because it's the power of God and his salvation. It's the great commission. It's our duty and our task. As 2 Timothy would say, we are soldiers of Christ. Go spread the gospel message. Amen? God bless you guys. Thank you so much for having me on.